0: Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank you so much for all the kindness that you've shown uh, my wife and I and uh, my daughter this morning. Um, we're thrilled to be here. Uh, and uh, folks, I just uh, want you to know that there are many brothers and sisters here in this area uh, who pray for you, uh, who pray for your pastor, who pray for your elders, uh, who pray that the Lord continue to encourage you and equip you and lead you by His grace. So. I am thankful to be here, thankful for Brother Blake, Um, and we're going to jump in the Word together. So, friends, if you have your Bible, let me uh, encourage you now to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we will be looking this morning at verse 21 down to verse 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 down to the end of verse 26. Dear ones, and the title of this morning's sermon is The Great Marriage Swap, The Great Marriage swap. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, down to the end of verse 26. My friends, let us read God's Word together. The Word of God says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray together? Dear Father, we thank you for this Word. We thank you that, Lord, you... Take your word, and you have declared that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. O Spirit, take this word, take this truth, take this gospel, we pray, and come and open us up, enlighten our eyes to see once again the beauty, the supremacy, the glory of Jesus. For, Father, our full and perfect salvation is in Him. Father, be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, this is October, and uh, if you are a fan of the Reformation, this is a big month, October, Reformation season. And friends, in the Reformation, there was a great recovery of the Christian gospel. That is, a recovery of the gospel that had been Uh, veiled in darkness for many years. And as the uh, Reformers were coming to and they were opening the Scriptures again and they began to see the light of the glory of God in Christ, uh, that gospel was so sweet and so beautiful to them. And and to the Reformers, uh, one of the great illustrations they had was that of a marriage swap. So in order to communicate the beauty of the gospel to communicate the goodness, the sufficiency of King Jesus. The reformer set out this illustration of a marriage swap, that in the gospel, we are as the street-walking woman. We are a lewd woman of the streets, and we have nothing but our sin, nothing but our guilt, nothing but our iniquities, and we are covered with all manner of unrighteousness. Yet the gospel declares that King Jesus... The prince of the land has been appointed for us, and he is wealthy, he is glorious, he is magnificent, and faith is like that day of marriage. And as we are united to Christ by faith, there is a great marriage swap where everything that I have, all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my iniquities are transferred to my prince. King Jesus, for which He died upon the cross, for which He was raised on the third day. And likewise, Christ's righteousness is reckoned to me. My Prince has the wealth of righteousness to cover all of my debts, all of the debt of my sin, past, present, and future. And in King Jesus, we are made holy, beautiful, and acceptable unto God, But then, friends, not only are we wed to Christ, but it is as though the Father now has adopted us, and now we are brought into the royal family. And as Christians now, we are learning royal manners. God is teaching us as His dear children how to think like Him, how to love like Him, how to serve as His Son. And so, friends, we live our lives now as the adopted children, and we are learning the ways of the court. But, friends, this doctrine here in Romans chapter three, verse twenty-four to twenty-six, this is the uh, what is front and center is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And again, friends, we will see that it brings us to see the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. So, verse twenty-one, friends, the scriptures say, "But now the righteousness of God." has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You know, friends, when we come to a portion of Scripture, uh, you know, we are, as it were, coming in on a bit of discourse. There are things that have preceded and there are things that follow. So what is the argument that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 3? Well, he's saying that no one can be justified by their own obedience to the law. And as Paul has said in verse 20, because through the law comes knowledge of sin. What Paul is saying is that the purpose of God's law is not for sinners to establish their own righteousness, but it is a ministry of condemnation. That is, the law functions as a schoolmaster. It functions as a guardian of sorts, leading us to King Jesus. It is the law of God which reminds us, as here Paul says, of the righteousness of God. But now, Paul says, now in this era of redemptive history, this righteousness of God has been manifested. It's come into time and space. But what is this righteousness of God? Well, friends, this righteousness of God is, on the one hand, that righteousness which inheres within the character of God. It is that righteousness that God exhibits in His own ways and works and all that He is. This righteousness of God is sourced in Him. Friends, that's what scared Martin Luther in the monastery. I'm talking about the Protestant Reformation. You know, Martin Luther, as he sat in the monastery, he would come to this phrase, the righteousness of God. And it shook him up because he understood that this was a holy standard, that God Himself was the standard of righteousness. And Martin Luther would sit and he would wrestle in his mind, how can I be righteous as God is righteous? And we saw that Martin Luther's compatriots, all of his Father Confessor and all of the other priests would say, well, Luther, we have the prescription for you. You need grace. You need faith. You need Christ. You need all of these sacraments. And Luther, the recipe is this. As these things are infused into you, eventually, ultimately, Martin Luther, you will have within yourself the righteousness of God. You'll produce that righteousness, But Luther was struck in his conscience because he said, but I am such a sinner. I have such sin and guilt. And Martin Luther would say, as I would go and confess my sin to the priest and I would receive that absolution, I'd go out and then as soon as I left that chamber, I would be reminded again of fresh sin. This standard of the holiness of God broke Martin Luther because he said, this is a righteousness I cannot attain. And that's true. It is a righteousness Luther could not obtain. It is a righteousness that we cannot obtain. Friends, God is the standard of holiness. And Brother Blake quoted from Isaiah chapter 6 in Revelation. You recall that Isaiah is brought into the throne room of heaven, into the Holy of Holies. And what does Isaiah see? But he sees the Lord seated upon his throne. And to the Lord, The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. The trisagion, three times holy. They are elevating God to the superlative. He is most holy. Friends, there is no unrighteousness in God. There is no sin, no iniquity. He is altogether pure and perfect. So God is the standard. His holiness is the bar. It is what He exhibits in His own character. The law has revealed that but verse 21 has been manifest apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this righteousness of God is that righteousness which inheres within God's character but it is also the righteousness that God provides. The self same righteousness of Jesus Christ and Paul says in verse 21 that it's been revealed apart from the law. That is the law is pointing to it. You can't find righteousness in the law but the Law is bearing witness to it, although the law and the prophets speak of it. Friends, uh, verse 21, the law and the prophets, that is uh, the whole Old Testament canon. The Old Testament speaks of God providing the righteousness that He requires. You know, dear friends, there is only one gospel. There is only one Savior. Friends, the Old Testament saints were justified before God the same way you and I are. In fact, when Paul makes his argument for justification by faith alone, what does he premise it on? He premises it on Abraham. He quotes Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham was justified through the instrument of faith, but he was ultimately resting in the righteousness of Christ. You know, it wasn't as though Abraham was justified by his own good works or his own law-keeping. Friends, The law was a condemnation for them as well, but the law was pointing to the Messiah. It was pointing to one who would keep the law for us. So, friends, the law and the prophets bear witness. They speak. They bear witness to a righteousness that comes apart from our own law keeping. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this self-same righteousness of God The righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. You see, friends, God will never negotiate his righteousness. He He doesn't have dual standards. You know, at our homes we have double standards, don't we? You know, there's things that daddy can do and mommy can do, but, you know, little boy, my son, you can't do. This is good for mommy, but it's not good for you. This is good for daddy, but. This isn't okay for you. We make those double standards, and sometimes we put those standards on others. But, friends, the standard that God holds us to is the same standard He adheres to, right? The law is the exposition of God's holy character. When He is saying, be holy, He says, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is saying, I am the standard of righteousness. I am the standard of truth. I am the standard of goodness. So, friends, in order to understand the gospel message, you and I must stop looking horizontally and we must start looking vertically. Because, dear friends, you know, if we look horizontally, we can find folks that are a lot worse than we are, right? I mean, we we don't like to think of ourselves as wicked people, We don't like to think of ourselves as as sinners. And and so when we look horizontally, friends, we can often find people that have done worse things than we do, right? We can look at the prison rolls and we can say, well, at least I didn't do this, that, or the other. But then also, friends, we can also look horizontally and we can find folks that have done a lot more good things than we have. They've been a little more selfless, a little more giving, a little more serving, and we say, well, you know, I'm somewhere in between. I'm not too bad, but you know there's room for me to improve. And if that's how we're looking, friends, we can think of ourselves as pretty good people. And there may be some of you today who are saying, well, Clay, that's that's where I'm at. I'm a pretty good guy. I've, I've lived a pretty good life. I take care of my family. I do all of these things. Surely, if God is a good and just God, He will know that I tried my best. And He'll accept that You know, with with the hand I was dealt, I did the best I could do. But the gospel says, dear sinner, you must stop looking horizontally. You must look vertically. You must look up to God because as long as you're here, you will never see the goodness of God in Christ. You will never grasp the greatness of God or the righteousness that He provides in Christ because when we look vertically, friends, we see that this righteousness of God, this perfect, sufficient holiness is what God requires and what God Himself provides. And it comes, verse 22, through faith. What is faith? Well, friends, faith means to receive and rest. There's no merit in faith, but God has appointed faith to be the instrument of union. Now, think of it this way, friends. Imagine that Christ is the locomotive. Imagine a big train car with all the power that comes in that train. And imagine you and I are as the train car. Now friends, there's no power in the train car. The train car is stationary, it doesn't move at all. The power is in that locomotive. But faith is as the pin, the hinge. It is what unites the locomotive to the car. God has appointed that faith would unite unrighteous, ungodly, wicked sinners to Christ the Savior. And because we're united, He pulls us to a full and perfect salvation. The power is not in the train car. The power is not in the pin. The power is not in faith. The power is in Christ. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has lived The perfect, holy, blameless life. Jesus has kept the law for us. Jesus has done what you and I failed to do. You understand that it was necessary for Jesus to come into this world. You know, sometimes we think of the gospel as... And we don't don't recognize that Jesus had to live a holy life up and to the cross. You know, if all that was required for our redemption was for Jesus to die... Upon the cross, Jesus could have popped down from heaven on Good Friday. He could have died, rose again Easter Sunday, and ascended to heaven. But Jesus, dear ones, not only died for you, he lived for you. And the pinnacle, the climax of all of that life of perfect obedience was the cross. Friends, it was necessary that the Son of God be born of a woman born under the law to redeem us who are condemned under the law. It was necessary for Jesus to obligate Himself to keep every commandment of God. He kept the Sabbath. He kept the pilgrimage feasts. But more than that, He always spoke the truth. He loved God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength, and He loved His neighbor as Himself. He lived the life of perfect righteousness that God requires of you. And of me. Jesus lived, and that obedience culminated in him willingly offering himself upon the tree, pouring out his blood as a sacrifice for sin. So, this righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that he provides. It is the righteousness of Jesus, the Messiah, and it becomes ours through the instrument of faith. And the beauty of the gospel is, is it's to all who believe. You know, there, there is a criteria here. This righteousness of God, this righteousness of Christ is only given to believers. But it's to all who believe. Dear friends, you know, you can stand before every man, woman, boy, and girl and you can say, if you will repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. This gospel is a free Full and faithful promise. Jesus says, if you come, I will save. God says, if you repent, I will redeem. God isn't speaking out of two sides of his mouth here. He's saying, come and drink of the water of life without price. Friends, this is our evangelism. You know, we, we are standing before sinners and we're urging them to repent. We're warning them that they don't have this righteousness that God requires. We warn them that unless they repent, they will be condemned under the wrath of God. But we promise to them that Jesus is a true Savior for those who come to Him. Now, Paul reviews in verse 22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Paul recaps. He says, okay, just so you understand that this righteousness that God demands is not a righteousness you produce... It is a foreign righteousness. As Luther Luther said, it's a justitia alia, a foreign righteousness. Let's recap. Who are we as human beings? Well, Paul says, there's no distinction. Whether Jew or Greek, every human being has sinned. For all have sinned. And more than that, we fall short of the glory of God. Well, what does it mean to sin? Well, friends, that word really means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. But you know, dear ones, we can often understand when, a, say, a professional archer doesn't always get a bullseye, right? You no, know, archery's hard. Uh, target practice is hard, right? We can often say, well, you know what, he's really trying to hit that bullseye. And, you know, maybe he misses it a little bit, but, but that's okay. But, friends, the sense here is, is not a of a willful, desiring to do good, yet falling short, this idea is of rebellion. We deliberately miss the mark. It's as though we we take that arrow and we aim it up at God, or we take that bow and we aim it at our neighbor, friends. Our hearts are full of enmity, full of hatred against God and against our fellow man. This is what the Bible speaks of, of Man's sin, or what we might call radical corruption. That is, man is corrupt to his core. Sin is not something that simply sits on the outside. Our society often talks that way, that that sin, this human malady, can be fixed by better education or more opportunities or more wealth. But, friends, the Bible tells us that the root of sin is in the human heart. It's in the human nature. We are, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us. We are by nature spiritually dead. So, friends, it's, it's not that we sin and thus… it's not as though we are… we sin and become sinners, but it's because we are by nature sinners that we sin. That, that is, our sin comes out of our nature. It, it's who we are. It's what we do. We do what comes naturally. You know, we come into this world and As little babies, we look awfully cute. I mean, my little daughter is adorable, and she is lovely and beautiful. But the Bible tells me that just like her mommy and daddy, she is not a little saint. She's a little sinner. She is spiritually dead. She is a child of darkness. And and, and I am praying for God to have mercy on her, to save her and bring her to himself, and praying that the Lord would use my wife and I to share the truth of Christ with her. But, friends, we must hear this indictment. All have sinned. Every one of us is under this condemnation. And more than that, we can't make up for the ground we've lost. We've sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Like the runner who has spent all of his energy and he falls a mile before the finish line. So, too, friends, we fall short. We cannot be righteous in and of ourselves as God has called us to. but We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, His perfect righteousness. Friends, you cannot understand the good news of the gospel unless you know the bad news. Unless you have an accurate diagnosis of the problem, you will never appreciate the gospel remedy. Dear ones, if we do not comprehend how spiritually dead we are, how utterly lost we are, how sinful we are, and how we have no power in ourselves to make ourselves right before a holy God. If we don't grasp these truths, friends, then we will never understand the good news. We will never understand the grace of God in Christ. So, dear friends, let me ask you that. Do you believe that about yourself, about your wife, about your husband, about your son and daughter? Do you believe, dear one? that we are sinners under the wrath of God. Because until you understand that, friend, you will not see the goodness or taste the sweetness of King Jesus. Well, then here's the recipe, verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, all men are sinners. We are under the wrath of God. We cannot be in ourselves or do the righteousness that God commands, He is perfectly holy and we are woefully wicked, then here is the question, how can a sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? Well, God in His grace justifies and are justified by His grace as a gift. That word for justification, it's speaking of a... uh, a legal declaration. This is forensic language. You know, you may have had forensics teams of speech and debate. Forensic just means law court language. This word justification means it's a, a decree. It is a ruling that's coming from God. God is making a decree. The Father is declaring that this sinner in His sight is righteous. Now, what are the grounds of that? Well, Paul goes on to say that the grounds of this ruling is not because God the Father looks at us as sinners and says, well, there's something good in Him. There's a little kernel of righteousness there. There's enough good works in there. No, Paul says in verse 24 that it's by His grace. God reckons sinners to be just, not on the basis of anything in us, but by His grace. What is grace? Well, grace is God's free and unmerited favor, God doing for man what man cannot do for himself. My friend, do you know that your whole life is submerged in grace? God, by His grace, even His common grace, gives us the sun and the the moon, uh, warm beds, uh, friends. All of this is by His grace. But this saving grace is what Paul has in mind here, this sovereign grace by which He does for men what man cannot do for himself, where he gives life by his Spirit, grants to us the gift of faith, and brings us to Jesus. Paul drives that home in verse 24 by saying that this righteous declaration of God, by which he declares sinners to be just, is on the basis of his grace, and it is as a gift. It's not earned, it's not bought, it is merely received. But again, what are the grounds? So, so we might say, okay, well, God is just unilaterally saying, I declare him to be just, slate's clean, you're good to go. Sometimes we think that's how it works. But, but Paul goes on to say, these are the grounds. This is why and how God is able to justify the ungodly through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption. All right, to redeem to purchase, to buy back. This redemption is in Christ. Christ has poured out His blood. He has poured out His life to release us from the wrath of God, to deliver us from the judgment to come through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's all in Christ. Friends, uh, Martin Luther when he was asked to distill down the Reformation, talking about uh, this justification by faith alone, he said that the Christian, the believer, is simul justus et peccator. He is at the same time before God, both sinner and saint. Meaning that in and of ourselves, friends, we remain sinners. We remain guilty. We remain transgressors. We We still have that sin nature, and we still continue to sin. We have no righteousness to claim. But since we are united to Christ through faith, since Christ's righteousness has been counted to us, God reckons us to be what we inherently are not. He reckons us to be just. He counts us just. And that is the essence of this doctrine. The righteousness that God requires, He reckons, puts into the account of bankrupt sinners as we are. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Well, how did Christ Jesus attain this righteousness for us? How did He redeem us from the wrath to come? Well, it is through the cross. Dear friends, you know that there's a reason why the cross is the symbol of the Christian religion, because this is where our redemption was accomplished. That life of perfect obedience I told you about, Jesus lived, it culminated in His death, right? This cross is at the center. You know, friends, sometimes we look at the cross and we say, well, this this just doesn't make sense. If God is so good, why can't He just pardon sin the way that we do? How do we pardon sin? How do we forgive one another? Well, we just say, let bygones be bygones. Let's have this all be water under the bridge. Why can't God just simply forgive without requiring satisfaction? Well, again, friends, it goes back to the righteousness of God. It goes back to God being holy. And because God is holy, that sin is an infinitely heinous offense against His infinite glory. That is an offense that must be dealt with. That is a a sin that must be addressed. And so, friends, God would send Jesus as a propitiation. God Himself would provide the substitute. Friends, all throughout the Old Testament, we have the sacrificial system. Have Have you ever thought about what that sacrificial system represented? You realize that it was a bloody affair. I mean if you and I could travel back in time and we could go to the Temple of Solomon and we could see the sacrifices that were laid upon the altar, friends, it was bloody, it was messy, it was gory. You know, God was, was, was revealing in these sacrifices His holiness, our sin, the wrath to come, and yet the promise of a substitute, a stand-in of a Savior. Right the Old Testament saints were to come and as they took that bull and and its blood was poured out and its flesh was laid upon that bronze altar as the flames began to burn upon that animal flesh, what were they to be reminded? My God is holy. My God is righteous. My God is just. And I am unholy. I am unrighteous. These flames of divine wrath deserve to engulf and consume me. And yet, God is merciful. God is forbearing. And there is a sacrifice here upon the altar. But that goat, that bull, that sheep, it's not sufficient because I have to get more. I have to bring more sheep. I have to bring more goats. No, the Old Testament saints could see that that was a shadow and a type. It was a picture. God was proclaiming to them the gospel. It was, as one theologian said, it was a pop-up picture book. God was displaying the gospel in drama. The holiness of God, the wrath to come, but of God's mercy. God would provide the substitute. And that's what the idea of propitiation means substitution and satisfaction. You recall that in all of the feasts of Israel, there was the Day of Atonement. You remember that one day a year, that Day of Atonement? It was dramatizing the cross. It was dramatizing Christ and Him crucified. You recall that that there would be two animals, right? One would be uh, sent out into the wilderness bearing the sins of the congregation. The other would receive the sins of the congregation and would be sacrificed. And this was dramatizing what Jesus Christ would do. He would be the sufficient substitute who would make satisfaction for the sins of His people by the sacrifice of Himself. In short, friends, He could do what no goat and bull could do, nor you and I could do, by our own life. The idea of propitiation means to satisfy divine wrath so that mercy comes, grace comes on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out. You remember in the garden, here Jesus is praying, and man, he is in distress. As he prays in the garden, he asks Peter, James, and John, please stay with me, pray with me. I am in great agony and turmoil. And so as he sits and he prays, you see that Jesus is sweating drops of blood. But what does he ask of the Father? Father, all things are possible for you. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But if it not be your will, that it pass from me unless I drink it. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Friends, what terrified Jesus Christ that night before he was crucified was not the Roman whips. It wasn't all of the beatings that he would endure. What terrified Jesus, what What was causing such anguish in his soul was that he knew he was about to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Jesus knew, oh Father, when I go to this cross, I am going to be drinking the divine fury. I am going to be ingesting in myself all of the judgment for all of the sins of my people. And Jesus in his humanity trembled in his boots. He was terrified. But he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. God strengthened his son. But on that cross, friends, Jesus drank that poisoned cup for us. Jesus suffered in our place. He endured hell upon the cross for us such that in his agony he could scream, "Ilawai, ilawai, lama my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced divine forsakenness. His humanity, which had always enjoyed the face of the Father, loving Him, being loved by Him for a short time, the lights went out, and all he could feel was the Father's wrath. You know, friends, there's an old medieval text, Why the God-Man, written by church father Anselm and and his thesis is why the God man well he had to be man to die and he had to be God in order to survive he had to be man because God cannot die God can't not exist if God did not exist everything in the world would poof out of being God is self-existent and eternal and he upholds the universe by the world of his power God cannot die God cannot mutate God is life. But when the God-man came, when Jesus came, oh, he could die. But when he bled upon the cross, friends, that blood that he shed <laughs> was of infinite worth because it was not the blood of a mere man that was shed upon the cross. It was the blood of the God-man. And that blood of Jesus is able to cover sins of every human being who comes to Him by faith. We know that in the cross there is satisfaction, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. That wrath has been satisfied. And again, verse 25, Christ is to be received by faith. Faith alone, friends, is the instrument by which sinners are united to the Savior. And what was the purpose? Well, Paul goes on in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Well, friends, God's character was on the line. You know, we, we talk about why cannot God just forgive sin the way you and I forgive sin? Why does he man demand satisfaction? Why all this business of a substitute? Well, friends, it's because God is wanting to uphold his justice. And, friends, God's integrity was on the line because God in his divine forbearance, had passed over former sins. You know, we look at the Old Testament saints, and we look at Abraham. We look at David, and we go, man, David was a sinner. You know, it's been said, David, when he was good, he was really good. But when David was bad, oh, he was really bad. David was a great man. He was a godly man, but he was a great sinner. So we might be standing here and go, well, God, why do you pardon David without any Satisfaction without any atonement. Paul says, God pardoned David as He pardoned Abraham, as He pardons every one of us. Through that same blood that was shed, through that same Christ who died upon the cross, in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. Friends, you know, God is so forbearing. That word forbear means to have mercy. It means to hold back. God is so merciful to us. God is so kind to us. You know, every human being, we said, is the recipient of God's grace, and we owe everything to God. But, but friends, as human beings, by nature, how how do we give thanks to this Creator to whom we owe all things? We don't. But God is patient and forbearing with sinners. And in this divine forbearance, according to this sovereign mercy, he passed over former sins. He passed over the sins of the saints of old, but he did not do so without satisfying his justice. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. God's righteousness is vindicated. His justice is upheld at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The mystery of the gospel, friends, God will not negotiate his righteousness. He will not alter his justice. In the gospel, he remains just and he justifies. He reckons to sinners the full sufficient righteousness of Christ. He counts them to be righteous in His dear Son, Jesus, and He remains just. Friends, the gospel declares that Jesus, when He suffered on the cross, when He bled and died, He was receiving the fullness of God's wrath against the sins of His people, and there is no more wrath for the people of God. There is no more satisfaction to be made. By a single offering, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse Himself. God remains just, and He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, dear friends, I want to ask you this today. What are you hoping in? The Bible tells us that one day every one of us will stand before God and we will give an account. You know, the Bible teaches very, very clearly a dual destiny for human beings, You know, it's been said, we'll all exist for eternity. The age-old question, is there life after this? Well, friends, there is existence after this. But the question whether you will have life is answered by, are you in Christ? Are you in Jesus? Are you united to Him by faith? Are you resting in Him this day as your sovereign and as your Savior? Because if so, friends... These promises are for you. Not only is your sin atoned for, not only is God's wrath satisfied, but the robes of God's Christ's righteousness are on you. You receive the full sufficient righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now, unto eternity, you can rejoice in the life that God has granted to you, and you can live for His glory with joy and with zeal. But friends, maybe today that's not you. Maybe today you say, I see this Jesus, but I don't like this God. I don't like this God who has His Son die upon the cross. I don't want this gospel. Dear friends, I I urge you today to repent. I urge you to call out to God for mercy. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to open your eyes to see the beauty of of this message, to see that God did not withhold his only son, but gave him up as a ransom for us all. Ask God to show you the beauty, the sweetness of Jesus, because the heart of the gospel is that Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. He lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will return at the last day to judge the living and the dead. All the righteousness you need is in Jesus. All the atonement for your sin is in Jesus. So I pray that you're hoping in him. And the Scriptures tell us, Jesus said to me, Come all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Friends, Jesus is a good shepherd. He's a tender prince. He loves poor, pitiable sinners. When we come to him with all of our guilt, carrying all of the burdens of our iniquities, when we find ourselves weary of turning from one philosophy, one idol, one relationship to another, we come to him and Jesus says, under me there is rest. Under me you will find joy. Under me you will have life. So, dear friend, if you have not yet called out to Christ, I pray that you will today. And and in closing, you know, dear Christian, keep drinking of Jesus. Keep satisfying yourself in Him. Keep seeing everything for your full and perfect salvation in the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Jesus. And we ask, O Lord, that You would open our eyes once again to see Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him. Oh, Spirit, we pray that you would take these truths and you would penetrate our hearts. Dear Spirit, we confess that we are unrighteous, ungodly, but Jesus is a great Savior. And so, dear Father, we want to live for his glory today. Father, I pray for these folks here at Jaffe Crossing Baptist Church. Lord, I thank you for uh, their faithful pastor and, and these elders that you've provided for them. Lord, I just pray that you continue to feed uh, them On the pasture of your word, I pray that you'd equip uh, these elders to to love you, O God, and to serve you to your glory. Father, we are entrusting ourselves to you and to your dear son. O Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, we pray. Father, this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.